Welcome to the D&D Roundtable presented by The Tome Show. Please use the affiliate links on thetomeshow.com whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. We'd also like to thank our sponsor for this podcast, noblenight.com, where out of print is available again. They have D&D and other tabletop RPGs, any edition, any product. With Noble Knight, you can even sell them your old gaming products you aren't using anymore. Today, we're going to talk about Iconics in D&D. But before we get to that, with me today at the roundtable are Rudy Basso. Hello, friends. Joe Lestowski. Howdy. And Andrew Kane. Hey there. All right, guys. Thanks for being on. Today's get-to-know-you question. What is your favorite die? All right, pick a number of sides. It could be the, the D4 or the fabled D2, perhaps. Uh, maybe you're a D30 guy. I'm going to go with the D4, the aforementioned D4. Um, it's just so funny looking. I mean, <laughs> I think it's when I first sat down at the table, it's the one that I was the most confused by. Because D6, you can imagine that. Obviously, it's the most common die. From there, you kind of scale up. But going backwards to a D4, and you get this like little weird pyramid thingy. It's like, what? This is confusing. And uh, obviously, it doesn't see a lot of love at the table, unless you're some sort of dagger person, which uh, <laughs> I don't need you in my game if you're throwing around daggers or something. Oh, burn. Burn. You're not bringing it up to the party. Played with. It's not enough damage. <laughs> Well, you know, the the D4 is a means to the sneak attack D6 in a lot of cases. Uh, how about you, Joe Lestowski? What is your favorite die? I'm going to go with an odd one. I'm going to go with the 2D6. Ooh. Uh, you, you can you can find there's a couple people that make them where it's a larger six-sider with a smaller six-sider inside, and you and the larger one is, is transparent, but you can still see the dots, so you roll them both together whenever you have to do 2d6 extra damage or whatever. Oh. But it's a single die with two dice in it, which is wow. kind of awesome. Some technological <laughs> stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's fancy. I don't know that the internal die rolls as consistently randomly as the external one, but it's still cool to look at. So, Yeah, I think it's probably close enough, right? Close enough. Yeah. I feel like my favorite die is uh, possibly, I don't know. I, I've never really thought about this that deeply. Uh, I'm going to go with the D12 because I don't think I've ever used one. <laughs> so it fascinates me. It's like an enigma. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're they're big for barbarians. You use them for for hit points mm. and for great axes. You know what? And that might be what is deep down in my brain. My first ever character was a barbarian, so maybe that's it's kind of like this, you know, deep sense memory that is coming out since I haven't played a character like that in a long time. Like, Let me ask you guys a dice related question though. Do you guys how do you feel about uh, they're called towers of high sorcery when you stack all the dice together? Do you find that annoying when other players do it? Do you do it yourself? Do you try to jiggle the table when you see someone doing it? <laughs> uh, I as a player, I have to say whenever I am playing, I do stack the dice. Uh, though I don't get upset when they fall over because I'm just going to knock it down myself and start from scratch again. So it's sort of a Sisyphusian task. Is that correct? <laughs> Very good. Very good. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a good player and I'm paying attention at all times at the table. So I don't even know what you guys are talking about. <laughs> I, as a DM, I get annoyed by it when I see other players doing it because that says to me that they're not paying attention to whatever's going on. Um, 
and as as a player, I tend to more instead of stacking dice on top of each other, I turn them all to their highest value to get them used to being that way. <laughs> I uh, see. It's funny. It doesn't bother me. It bothers me if people are doing something that is like texting or uh, surfing the internet because then they can't be paying attention necessarily. Mm. Um, but I do, I think that's more, uh, like doodling, you know, they've found that people who doodle are actually better listeners than people Mm. who don't. And to me, a a task like that is similar to doodling and doesn't mean they're not paying attention. It just means they are, uh, one side of their brain is concentrating on something and the other side is uh, concentrating on you. Well, maybe you've warmed my cold DM heart, and now I I won't come down so hard on my players. (laughs) Moving on to our topics. Today we're talking about Iconics. And when we're talking about Iconics, we mean when you see something, be it a piece of art, or a phrase, or a cover of a book, and you can say, that is Dungeons & Dragons, without any sort of D&D branding on it at all without any title, without any Wizards of the Coast logo. That is what iconic is. It doesn't necessarily mean your favorite of something. It just means you can say, you can strip all the branding off it and say, that, my friends, is Dungeons and Dragons, and we all know it. So we're going to talk about people's personal opinions about uh, iconic things, party makeups, adventures, monsters, that sort of thing. And we're going to hear from the experts. The four of us are going to sit council on what is iconic in D&D tonight because iconic is a buzzword for D&D Next. They're trying to make this edition feel like the be-all, end-all, iconic edition of D&D. So, first up, let's talk about what Classes and races do you find in the iconic D&D party? Wizards seems to suggest that it's a human cleric, an elf wizard, a halfling rogue, and a dwarf fighter. And so my question is, having played in many, many role-playing games with many different parties, it seems like no one ever plays this exact party makeup because it feels a little too boring? Do we feel like this is still iconic of D&D, or do we feel like there is something new? Well, I, having read a lot of the earlier editions, I feel like uh, human everything was more iconic. Uh, if you wanted to play a dwarf or an elf, you played the class dwarf or the class elf. Uh, and those always felt like this sort of like kind of secondary characters, but all the main people and everybody in the towns and anybody that you might run into in the road were always humans. So I feel like, for me at least, looking back at old editions, I feel like the iconic D&D party isn't uh, what they're made up of. I know there has to be a wizard, there has to be a rogue. There might be a fighter or it might be a paladin, but I think wizard and rogue definitely, and then all humans. So in your opinion, what is iconic then is you have a wizard and a rogue, uh, and and then the you need to have those two things for a party to be iconic. The others are kind of, you, you can swap in and out, maybe one's a barbarian instead of a fighter or a paladin instead of a cleric. Like th- those you can, you can mix and match, but I feel like there has to be that one guy who's climbing up to the statue to pull the giant gem out of the eye. And there's got to be the wizard, you know, casting the feather fall on him when he slips. And uh... I would probably replace Joe's rogue with a fighter. I don't know. It's such a 
difficult question because for me dungeons and dragons is all about creativity and that in a way is the most iconic thing a party that's so unique and different um i feel like it's such a step backwards to be like ah this is this is what a party should be Mm -hmm. i I don't i I, i'd rather they distance themselves from the the ideal party makeup or the classic party makeup that's interesting. Well, and I think what you're seeing, I think you do see in those four classes, cleric, fighter, wizard, rogue, a lot of variability as far as a fighter can be an archer or it could be a gladiator or it could be a cunning duelist. You can use a big weapon. You can use a one-handed weapon and a shield. You can specialize in throwing javelins. And similarly, wizards can specialize in different schools of magic. Rogues can be thieves or cunning fops or interesting performers even. Uh, And clerics, certainly depending on the god or gods they are devoted to, Hmm. also have a very different feel. I feel like they're the most malleable in a way out of Mm. a lot of the other classes um actually it's funny you mentioned that in one of the DD next uh trials we ran a group of all clerics it was right after they had released the uh the different domains and and we ended up filling all of the roles in the party with clerics and there was a cleric of the thievery domain and that filled the rogues role and a cleric of the war domain and that filled the fighters role and we were the interfaith discussion group and we really uh (laughs) it worked really well we we destroyed everything in front of us <laughs> in the names of our various gods <laughs> uh, and you'd have a little bit of a harder time doing that with the with the latest packet but yeah that is right 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 too. yeah andrew kane what's your iconic D party well i think when i when i look at what wizards classifies potentially as the iconic party i i, I kind of get it on the one level because i think those things almost transcend the game in the sense of uh, people are more likely to rec- non D and D players are more likely to recognize those things as opposed to a Hexblade or a Deva or something along those lines. So I get where they're coming from, but I do agree with Rudy that you don't want to. You kind of want to. There's so many different options and variability now that you want to kind of. It's more forward looking the the broader base and how you can and you want to have a damage dealer and you want to have someone who can deal damage magically uh you know and you know disarm traps and all those things so uh, you know in my mind i don't think it ever needs to be limited i think the most fun you can do in dnd is when you do sort of a non-traditional pairing of class and race and all of those different things so i get where you know kind of how those can those four can be kind of that iconic group but um i think I, i think the great thing about the game is that you have the opportunity to play with that absolutely and i think everybody would agree with that i don't think iconic means we're putting you in this box and you Uh, have to to do it it's not a ruling i think it's more a what when you look at it you say that's dungeons and dragons and i think that's a good way to think about it is people who don't play D &D, what would make them think of D D? Uh, and from another sort of perspective, whenever I'm running D&D encounters, we always have pre-generated characters for the random new person that shows up. And usually it's, we've got a, a, a hit things hard person. We've got a <laughs> easy magic per, You know, we, we, we try to fill all those roles so that people who may not have familiarity with D&D but can still identify with those archetypal roles uh, have something they can jump in and play right away. Oh, that's really smart. 
for me, I think the fighter is iconic because it's such a weird way to term someone that uses a sword or a weapon in combat. I feel like a fighter these days, when you think of it, is like a boxer or maybe a mixed martial artist. Uh, I'd think warrior would be a more obvious way to phrase it. I feel like maybe that comes from back in their wargaming initial stages of the game where these are your fighters, these are your archers kind of thing. So that always kind of stuck out to me as something specifically D&D, the fighter. And that's a that's actually a really great question. What do you think is the iconic D&D class? I th- for me, I think it's probably a wizard. Um, I'll, I know a wizard is something that is not exclusive to D&D, but I think the, I don't know, the, all the things that go into the gameplay, preparation of spells, making choices, um, you know, how you can focus on particular types of magic, etc. I think when someone plays a wizard well, uh, that for me is kind of the, the iconic class. Which is weird, because I've never played a wizard. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to go with the rogue or the thief, or however you want to name it. Um, The the guy that can, you know, look for traps and disarm them, and and always goes into dungeons for the treasure that's in the dungeon. Um, That that feels, and and it's weird, because my, my, my general feel about iconic sort of... uh, you know what the adventure should have, which we'll get into later, is is a little um, contrary to what I'm about to say. But I feel like the greedy player, the the sort of the munchkin, the the, the rogue, is is iconic D and D for me. <laughs> Interesting, yeah. Well, and I I can see all three perspectives: the fighter, the wizard, the rogue. And it's funny that you all picked one from that iconic wizards party makeup. Mm. <laughs> I don't want to. I'm trying to. I want to be like, no, you're wrong, but I always feel like the rogue is a supporting character and not the primary. You know what I mean? I don't see the rogue as the the protagonist in the party ever, so I don't know if I'm on board with you there, Joe. Well, I I see the rogue as the survivor, though. I mean, if the rogue's going to be the one that goes back to the tavern with some of the dragon's gold because he slipped away early, you know? And the survivor writes the history books, so he'll be the protagonist when people hear the story. Greedy coward. <laughs> yes. The yes. Of your story. Okay. Well, and in some ways, if you think about it, you know, the Hobbit, Bilbo Baggins is a rogue. That would uh, be his character mm-hmm. class. But at the same time, you could also argue he's not really. I mean, he's not the it's Aragorn. The man. Hero he's the protagonist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's your Aragorns, your your Thorins. I mean, at the end of the Hobbit, Bilbo is knocked out for most of the Battle of Five Armies. Spoiler alert! And uh, <laughs> <laughs> Statue of Limitations. Armies. The book came out in the thirties. Uh, <laughs> but you, you know, so I wonder. That's that's an interesting point. That does the iconic character have to be the hero. I don't know, some, yes. something to ponder in the midnight hour when you can't get to sleep. Let's take a break to hear from our sponsors, NobleKnight.com. Hello! Hello, citizens! Oh, thank goodness! Adventurers! We need a noble knight! Perhaps you can slay the beast of retail and reap the promises of riches. Riches? Yes! Great prices! Out-of-print games! The latest releases and a magic box that converts all of your old loot into cash or new loot. 
But why? Fantastic. I'll do it. Yes. Well, you see, the beast, he kidnapped the mayor and can only be slain by the most noble of knights. Yes, yes, yes. I said I'll do it. Yes, the thing is, I was talking to her. What? Fear not, kind citizen. The noble knight will save the day, rescue the lord in distress, and liberate all that loot anyway only possible at Noble Knight. If you'd like to get your hands on Noble Knight's loot, head over to thetomeshow.com and click on the link in the show notes for this episode. And don't forget to tell them that the Tome Show sent you. Ha! I got to do something to help out. Here's another fun question for you guys. Other than a dragon, what is the iconic D&D monster in your opinion? Andrew Kane, let's start with you. I hope it's Shark. <laughs> I wish it was wear shark uh, or wear anything since that that seems to be a thing. Uh, but actually, uh, interestingly enough, as I'm thinking about it, it's kind of funny when I said wizard as the iconic class, because I think for me, outside of dragons, kind of the iconic monster is a lich. Um, I don't know. I just think it's, again, such an interest. It combines a lot of interesting elements from the game, which is magic user, undead. And usually there's a pretty interesting story about it. And then uh, I also like the Lich because you can build such an interesting, you know, with the phylactery and all of that stuff, build an interesting quest, a whole campaign around that type of monster. Um, so for me, that's that. Yeah, and I think Liches definitely fall into the iconic D&D category like you said the phylactery really makes them stand out as an interesting sort of built-in recurring villain uh, right. which is really great uh rudy what is your iconic D monster it's gotta be the beholder ah, i mean i agree i yeah. agree it's big giant floating eye that shoots magic that kills you instantly <laughs> uh, he's got sharp teeth so he can bite you as well and then he's got other little eyes coming out of him, I think, right? Yeah. Is yeah. that a beholder? Yeah. Yeah, he's yeah. shooting iris. Isn't, isn't it like the little eyes are, you don't need those, but sometimes they have them? Um, I don't know. It's beholder, though, because it's terrifying. It is just as scary as a dragon, in my opinion, because it's so unnatural and strange and like, how does it poop? Like, what's going on there? It's just, it doesn't make any sense. Sorry, in, in all my oh. characters' minds, when they see Beholder, that's the first thing they think is, what is that? How does it poop? <laughs> Rudy, I, I agree with you 100%. I think it's also iconic because it's one of those monsters that is sort of solely associated with D&D. You don't really see... Uh, other than maybe in like Doom Two, you don't really see beholders oh, wow. showing up in a lot of places. <laughs> Doom. It's a deep cut, guys. That was a deep cut. <laughs> Joe, what is your iconic D and D monster other than a dragon? Other than a dragon, and I also had Lich and Beholder on my list, but I'm gonna go with the Owl Bear. Uh, because they don't exist in any other yes. sort of fantasy setting, and they don't make any sense. They're not one part owl, one part bear. They're a combination of an eagle and a bear, but why would you do that? They just don't make sense, but they're something that is sort of... It, it speaks to me of the old D&D arcane books of monsters. You'd open it up, and you'd be like, what the heck is that? I'm going to make the players fight that. And and <laughs> it it shouldn't exist, but it does, and it does in every edition of D&D, &D, and I think that makes it iconically D&D &D for me. 
Wow. That's, I mean, again, Albert, that's a great pick. It would be, it, you would be hard pressed to say which of these three monsters is the most iconic, you know? Um, and if you listeners have an opinion, leave it in the comments. I'd love to hear what your iconic D&D monsters, other than dragons, are. <laughs> Pretty awesome. Yeah. I feel like combining two creatures into one super creature is pretty D and D. Yes, <laughs> especially with those old books. There's some weird stuff going on in there. Absolutely. Again, I will reference the Were Shark. So, <laughs> what does an iconic D and D adventure need to have, in your opinion? And you can list several things. Uh, maybe, perhaps a dungeon, perhaps a dragon, that sort of thing. Uh, and why don't we start with you, Joe? Uh. Well, first off, for me, I think the chance to be a hero. I think uh, the this sort of and this this is kind of in, in contrast to what I said about the the rogue being the iconic class. But I think it's it's somebody in need. Somebody has a problem. There's something, some monsters or bandits or something that needs to be stopped, and they need someone to step up and be a hero. Um, and that's that's that to me is sort of the that, that's why I, I started playing D and D was because it gave me a chance to be a hero and that was cool. Um, on top of that, um, depending on I know Living Forgotten Realms, the iconic thing for that is usually the person that sent you on the mission will betray you and is actually the big boss at the end. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but for me, the big thing is the chance to be a hero and the need for a hero in a world full of awful things. And a follow-up to that, do you have a particular style of adventure you would consider iconic? Uh, big and sweeping, dungeon-crawly, wilderness, that kind of thing? Um, you know, I'm going to say it's, it's for, for me at least, it's, it's the find this lost artifact one. Whether, whether it's, you know, the, the, the old wizard in the tavern that says, oh, I need you to go find this for me, or it's the, you know, you, you heard this story about this invincible coat of arms that you need to go get and it's sort of going down specifically looking for some long lost thing that you're trying to liberate from monsters or or win for yourself rudy what do you think an iconic D adventure needs to have i feel like it's got to have some sort of delving whether it be through caves or through a dungeon and uh, in the search of loot <laughs> um, whether it be given initially by uh, an old man, as Joe put it, which is a great hook, at least by all means. Dams out there, keep that going. Or uh, maybe they found a map somewhere. I think that it, it needs to be uh, going through a dungeon and, and mapping it out as you go and eventually making it to the big boss who's a beholder or a dragon or something like that. I feel like that's the iconic. When people think of what a D&D game is that don't play it, they're like, oh, that probably involves fighting in a dungeon. So... Sure, very something very Diablo esque, yes. if you will. Yes. Mm. What uh, do you enjoy that style of D and D adventure, Rudy? No, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> uh, not at all. No. Yep. <laughs> I I think I've talked about what I like. I like being just a couple dudes in the world, and the world's bigger than you, and uh, you're just trying to make it make your way. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. You have said that before. Andrew Kane, what does your iconic D&D &D adventure need to have? Uh, well, 
Rudy said a kind of my big thing, which is uh, some kind of a dungeon delve or something related to it, because I think there's so many great opportunities for that. But on top of that, what I, for me, what I really like is um, high stakes um, in the sense of, and that kind of piggybacks uh, a little bit on um, what Joe said and the idea of the chance being to be a hero, uh, the chance of being a hero. Uh, but I like when kind of things bigger than you are in the balance and that your actions can have consequences one way or another. And I'm not saying like the world needs to end, but you know, it's not, it's not just, Oh, we're going to try and figure this out. You know, an entire town could be in the balance or, or something. I just like kind of the high stakes that put a little more meaning behind your actions slash force you to at times make particular choices that could have significant repercussions beyond just your party. And do you like those choices to be clear cut or do you like them to be choices that are difficult to make because it's not a, it's not just a question of good or evil. You're within some sort of, uh, you know, there is no right answer scenario. Well, I like it to be a mix. Sometimes I like the answer to be clear-cut. Uh, obviously, for game reasons, I think the not-quite-clear-cut um, gray areas, etc., are more interesting, but that can lead to really long conversations sometimes when you just want to get to the next battle or whatever's going on. Um, so I think a good mix of those, but I don't think every... Dis- you know, it doesn't need to be, as you're saying... Um, uh, black or white, good or evil. And, you know, sometimes the best games are when you think you're in the service of a good person and it turns out the person you're working for the whole time is an evil dragon that you then have to fight at the end. (laughs) Not that that's ever happened to me. (laughs) I know nothing about that. (laughs) Rudy, I'm going to put this to you. Um, do you, so do you like the stakes to be high? How do you, where do you like your stakes? Should it just be personally affecting the people in the party or should it be greater? Um, I think it should scale as you gain in level. I think initially uh, you shouldn't be fighting to save the world at level three. Uh, As you get stronger, I mean, it has to scale in a way, so you'll be fighting giant monsters. I like the stakes to be lower. I don't want the world depending on me because then I feel obligated to follow the quest path and there's little leniency, if you will. Um, I kind of just want to go off the rails sometimes, but I still feel drawn in to close the portal so the demon armies don't attack and destroy <laughs> Daggerford. Um, sure, but you would prefer a sandbox style of adventure. Yes. Yeah, and I know that makes it more difficult on the dungeon master to be like, you know what, forget this, I'm going to go be a pirate, but uh, I well, would love to be able to do that. Let me Let me throw this out there as a DM. In some ways, it makes things more difficult, but in some ways, it makes them easier because then you don't have to prepare as much in the off time. <laughs> you can say, well, these guys are going to go off the rail anyway, so I just better read up on the area and work on my improv skills and think about what's around there. And uh, But you don't necessarily need to prepare a 20-room dungeon, you know? I would say the argument can be made that it actually puts less work on the DM when you decide to go off the rails. So Maybe not work, but pressure, perhaps, is a better way to put it. Sure, yeah. I, oh, and I agree. I think there are some DMs that would drive insane, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, in, in a lot of games that I've run as a DM, uh, 
given the stakes kind of a, a balance of the two, almost running it like a TV season so that like in the middle of the level, I, I run, try to run each level like a TV season so that like just before you jump up to the next level, you've got a big fight against that might have a larger consequence but prior to that you know you've had the episode where you deal with this guy's personal problems and this character needs a new set of armor and you go off to do that and then you know so it gives players kind of a, a balance i guess so that they're not always fighting to save the world but they're also not always you know trying to find that one cobbler that can make the right size elven boots that they need to wear uh <laughs> Maybe that's a little too intricate, but you know that that's sort of a thing to just sort of throw that uh, variance at them. Um, sure, you almost have a like an A plot and a B plot, if you will, uh, for for what your characters are doing. And some things are very important, and some may not yeah. be as important, say, to saving the world, but they're still important things they want to do. Right, and and that that feeds into what I think. It, when I'm a player, what I thought was the uh, iconic adventure is different than what I think of iconic adventure as a DM. Uh, because it, as a DM, the only thing I think is really iconic to D&D is consequences. Uh, and I like to make sure that my players, whatever they do in-game, that there are consequences for it. You know, if, if you slay the dragon, yes, the town loves you. And then they send you, you know, fan mail when you're off somewhere else adventuring. But if you choose, <laughs> you know, not to save this, this you know... Miller's daughter or whatever and she ends up dying because you were busy looking for treasure then he's going to have a vendetta for you and then years later maybe he's going to you know or, or something like that so just so that there's people feel like they're they're attached to the world and and as a dm that's that's what i i always enjoy uh seeing in a dnd adventure is is uh that sort of uh when when you when you act there are reactions yeah i couldn't agree more with that that is Certainly a feature of D&D that we like We're living in a living world that reacts to your actions where you can do anything that you could do as a person. Yeah, it's not just running up to somebody and hitting the A button. You know, you have to actually interact. And that is pretty awesome. Let's talk about this question. In your mind, okay, <laughs> what is the single most iconic D&D rule? That if somebody says, if you're at a table, if somebody says, roll initiative, is that very iconic D&D? And is that, say, more or less iconic than, hey, uh, can I get sneak attack here? Is this, uh, what about cover? Can I get some cover? Um, so anyway, what in your mind, as far as rules go, is the most iconic D&D rule? And Rudy, we'll start with you. Saving throws, which aren't as prevalent in these newer editions, but way back when you always had to save versus everything. Mm. So I think saving throws, that's Save. my pick. Super iconic. I agree. Yeah. Very, very iconic. Uh, how about you, Andrew Kane? I mean, you already said it, but I do think, you know, when I think of, when I think of D and D it kind of, it's rolling initiative, you know, and the excitement when you, get the highest one and you're going to be going first or when you fail miserably and roll a one and you are dead last. Um, I, I do think, like, I think when I think about D and D, that's kind of one of the first things that comes to mind. Um, so sorry to use what you already said, but that's what I got to go with. No, that's okay. It was an example and I pulled it on the fly because it seemed very iconic. So, <laughs> uh, that makes perfect sense that someone would say that Joe, well, 
as much as I want to say Thacko, um, <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, yeah, it's it just too many bad memories. Uh, backwards reverse math. Uh, but um, I'm going to go with uh, hit points. I know that every video game and, and other thing has has used it since then, uh, but just the idea that your your health is metered out in this this numerical fashion that somehow doesn't affect your ability to keep fighting and whatnot, even if you're at one hit point or, <laughs> or at you. But um, I'm reminded in 2000, early 2000s, um, there was a book that came out, a role-playing game um, by a guy named Jacob Norwood called Riddle of Steel. And it's the only RPG that's been officially endorsed by, I think it's the Society for Creative Anachronisms combat group. Uh, because they have realistic combat rules in it. Um, but he created the game because he wanted something more realistic because he was playing D&D and he had a 20th level dwarf who was standing on a cliff. He looked down the cliff, did the math, and said, you know what, I could just walk off the cliff and survive because of my hit points. And and so I think hit points are, are sort of a, a thing that has always been a representation of health in D&D and really, really is iconic to... Uh, how you feel you're doing in game i guess yeah absolutely and you're right it's a concept that has carried over into a lot of other games computer role-playing etc etc you know i again i would be hard pressed to pick between initiative saving throws and hit points as to which is more iconically D D. what about this it's not necessarily a rule but it is a an adage, shall we say, of never split the party. Do you oh, think? yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a pretty iconic D&D phrase. Mm-hmm. I think my iconic D&D rule would be save or die. Oh, yeah. Ooh. <laughs> I mean, that relates to Rudy's saving throws rule for sure. Uh, but, but specifically save or die, I think, is a very iconic D&D thing. Let me let me ask you guys this. What do you think of uh, movies that put you in the D&D mood? Like, what's the iconic D&D movie in your mind? The Dungeons and Dragons film starring Marlon Wayans. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Rudy, I think Joe was serious. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, certainly, I, I you know, I think this is obvious, but perhaps that what iconic means um i think the the lord of the rings films uh certainly put you in the the dnd mood and even the hobbit films which i know are controversial uh and we may lose podcast <laughs> listeners because i'm saying this but even th- watching those puts me in the like oh yeah i definitely want to play some dnd mood mm-hmm. i think of a movie like uh, the russell crow robin hood or even something like kingdom of heaven i don't know you know just kind of that you know, kind of armor, you know, you're fighting with swords and shields and all that stuff. Uh, someone usually does some ridiculous thing with a bow and arrow. Um, I, I, that just makes me think of it. Uh, just adventure movies in general kind of get me in the mood. I know Eberron is compared to, or like uh, they often say an inspiration is Indiana Jones. So watching those movies where he's in a temple and walking around and stuff. And oh, yeah. uh, that kind of makes me want to play a role playing game. Maybe not D&D specifically, but just adventure, you know? Yeah, and even, it's funny, even if it's not an awesome movie, if it's <laughs> if it's over the top and and it's like a good time, uh, for instance, I will reference the Brendan Fraser mummy movies. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, like you watch That's those right. and you're like, 
yeah, I, th- I think, I think, yeah, I want to explore a pyramid and wake an ancient <laughs> mummy and then be responsible yeah. for putting him back. That would be awesome, you know? Yeah. You know what's always been the biggest sort of dungeon crawl feel movie to me is Aliens. Mmm. Oh, yeah. I like that. You know, because I mean, oh, he's got a flamethrower. Well, there's your wizard, you know. Oh, they're, you know, <laughs> trying to sneak around. Oh, you can try, you're making a listen check. Are they getting closer? Are they getting, you know, it, it, it's just, it feels very claustrophobic in that way that I think dungeons should feel. And, and that's always given me that kind of, oh, there's a horrible monster behind the corner, you know. Absolutely. Just like Deep Blue Sea. Uh, oh, <laughs> it's, it's aliens underwater, guys. Dragons, yeah. The sharks are like there's weird where sharks. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, where sharks, and we've come full circle. Where can people find you, Rudy? Hey, you can follow me on Twitter at Rudy Basso. R U D Y B A S S O. Joe, where can people find you? Uh, if you go to modern-myths.com, I write the What the Average Joe Thinks uh, gaming reviews. I'm on Twitter, but I never post, so don't bother following me there. But uh, if you go to Obsidian Portal and look for Joe Listowski, uh, you can check out the two different fairly overly written gaming worlds that I'm running right now. Uh, and if you want to leave comments there, that'd be cool, too. Excellent. We'll link you up. And Andrew Kane, where can people find you? You are welcome to follow me on Twitter at Cavalier Kane, K-A-V-A-L-I-E-R-K-A-N-E. It's a wild ride. And guys, if you have a question or topic you'd like to see us discuss on the roundtable, reach out to me on Twitter at James Intracasso. That's J-A-M-E-S-I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O. Or you can reach out to any of these guys in the various ways that they have just given you. They are all going to be back. Or you could leave us a comment on the Tome Show's website, thetomeshow.com. And shameless plug, check out my new blog, which is all about the fifth edition world I'm building. It's at worldbuilderblog.me. All right. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Joe, Andrew, and Rudy. Also, many thanks to Jeff Greiner for letting us join the Tome Show lineup. Our theme music was composed by Eric Michaels. Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. Keep on rolling, and keep on listening to The Roundtable. <laughs>